Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, we're in week two of our three-part study of conversions. So we're reading the accounts of how and why people turned from the direction they were going in to believe in Jesus, or how they found Jesus as they were seeking truth, or how their partial knowledge of a true and living God was enhanced by the full knowledge of the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So we're, look, we're considering these accounts. Throughout the book of Acts, there are all these accounts, but in these three weeks in particular, we're looking at these accounts of people's lives being changed. And a conversion, a conversion implies a change, a transformation. It is the process by which a person is born again. They receive new life. They are beginning a lifelong journey of being transformed into the image of Christ. And I want, to, I want you to notice that statement that it is an ongoing nature of this transformation. It is an ongoing process. Conversion is not just about a one-time public proclamation of believing in Jesus. As important and as significant as that may be, Conversion is about continuous change, continuous growth. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long you've known the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you know a lot about the scriptures or not. Conversion is this experience, is this process that we would continue to be changed in the presence of the Lord and that we are growing and maturing as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So, last week, based on Acts 16, we saw that conversions took place through a variety of ways. God uses all sorts of different means to reveal himself to people. He, it, it's not just one method. And so it's not just that you say, well, you know, that appeals to that person, but for me, uh, it just doesn't. No, God, God knows exactly who you are. God knows exactly what your situation is. And God intervenes in people's lives in such wonderfully personal, loving ways where he demonstrates that he cares for us individually. He cares for what we're thinking about. And he answers those prayers. And you're saying, Lord, if you're real, show me this. And he answers. And he does this and arrests us in our path and turns us around lovingly, gently, and that's the beauty of what God does when he reveals. And when, he, when we saw this last week, we said, you know, all these variety of ways. But we also saw that conversions are possible only by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are totally reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't turn anyone's heart towards God. We cannot convict them of sin. We cannot save them. We merely declare the word of God. And that word of God that is living, that is active, we just trust that that word of God is going to have an impact on that person. And then we point people to Jesus. And then we allow the Holy Spirit to be in and through that, through, working through us so that we manifest the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does his work in them. The Holy Spirit transforms people. So we saw all of this last week. This week we're considering two more points about conversions 
based on Acts 17, 1 through 15. So let's read this portion together as we typically do. Acts 17, 1 through 15. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. That's a great phrase. They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out, of the crowd, out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. You know, verse 2 is such a matter-of-fact statement that we may miss its significance. It says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And then, for at least three weeks, three Sabbaths, he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures why they should believe in Jesus as the Messiah. When he fled from Thessalonica, he went to Berea and again went to the synagogue to explain the scriptures to the Jews. And his, his outreach, his going to the Jews, his fellow Jews, may seem unremarkable except for the fact that as we've been reading in these past few chapters even, in almost every city, it was his very own people, it was the Jews, who rejected him, hurt him, and tried to kill him. So, so why does Paul keep going back to the synagogues? 
Wasn't he called to share the gospel with the Gentiles? Why keep going back to the Jews just to get beaten up? Right? But to understand Paul's motivation, let's look at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And in Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul writes this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. If this reminds you of another story that is a similar sort of sentiment, it is the story of Moses. All the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Moses had brought the children of Israel out of the Promised Land. Him and he is being led by the Lord to do something that is, seems completely impossible. There was, not a, was not any, there was nothing in the natural that would have said, yep, Moses, you can just go bring these slaves out of Egypt and you can come to the mountain that the Lord has called you on, bring these millions of people as such, and, and you can do all of this without any problem. There was nothing in the natural that would have suggested that that could have been done. It was totally supernatural, and God is working through Moses, and God is manifesting his power and his miracles that are taking place, and he brings the people to the mountain. And then... He goes up on the mountain to commune with God, 40 days and 40 nights. And you know the story. The children of Israel turn to Aaron and they say, as for this Moses, we don't know anything more about him. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's whatever. But we are going to make a golden calf and we're going to worship this golden calf. And when God then directs Moses back to the camp and Moses is distressed at what is going on. There's the judgment that is coming upon the people. I mean, it's just a, I mean, read through it in Exodus chapter 32. It's, it's just heart-wrenching to see what the people did after having experienced God in the way that they did to turn from him the way that they did. It's just sad. But after all of that, when Moses is, I mean, the, God is now bringing judgment as such. But in Exodus chapter 32, verse 31 through 33, Moses says this. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written, or the book of life that we would refer to. If not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, 
I will blot out of my book. You know, and you read these stories of Paul and of Moses, or you read these accounts like this, and it should definitely bring to mind the ultimate substitutionary and sacrificial love that we see the example of, and that is Jesus. Jesus who would go to the cross, and here we are in this period, you know, leading up into Easter, to Resurrection Sunday, where we, where we recognize that these, this was that time of, you know, in Jesus' ministry, in his life, where he knows where he's going, the, the, the earthly ministry is coming to a close, and he is going to the cross. He has a purpose, his face is set, and he has a purpose to go to the cross to die on our behalf. It, as a substitute for our sins. For whom? For those who would reject him, who would turn against him. And it's not just about those people 2,000 years ago. I'm speaking about us. He went to the cross 2,000 years ago for our sakes, for all those people before him and all those people after him. And it, he wasn't saying, you know, the people before me rejected me or the people before me did heinous sins and I'm dying on their behalf and the people who come after me, they already know that I died on the cross so, you know, it's not as grievous. No, no, no. When Jesus died on the cross, he's saying, look, you're going to commit all sorts of sins in the future too, but I'm dying for your sake now. And he was willing to go to the cross and bear that entire weight of our sins on him as a substitute. To take our place. So this substitution, this sacrifice, this willingness to say, me, take me, spare them. I mean, this is not something that is unusual for us as we look at the word of God. And we see these. But you know, when you think about this, what is it that compels Paul and Moses and Jesus to be willing to give up their own lives for the sake of others. It is their love for the people. And so this morning, I want to tell you, if we're thinking of people needing to be converted, needing to come to Jesus, needing to hear the gospel, you need to be saved, if we're thinking of that, I want to tell you that conversions stem from they start from, they are completely based in sacrificial love. If we desire for others to be converted and to know Jesus, it cannot be based on any other reason than our sincere love for them. It can't be, oh, you know, here are these poor heathen. Let me go tell them and let me go show them that I know the gospel. No, it has to be because we say, I love this person. It has to be because we say, you know what, I, I may never meet the person that's going to see that, that product that I'm putting out or that software that I'm writing. But I love that person. And I am eagerly desiring for that person to know the love of God, just as I know the love of God. When I care about that person, I want them to be in, in good stead with God. We're not sharing the gospel for our sakes, for our glory. We're sharing the gospel for their sakes, for their salvation. And the question is, we may say, oh yeah, I love the person, you know, I love the, the person all around the world, not like me, who doesn't believe like me, so on. But how much do we love them? How much do we love them? Would, would we be willing, like Paul and Moses, 
to forfeit our own salvation for the sake of those we were trying to reach? Think about that. Would you say, blot me out of the book of life so that this person could be saved? Would you do that? You know, we may be ourselves, and we're certainly aware of missionaries who are willing to forfeit their lives on earth for the sake of those that they're trying to reach. We know of many missionaries who have given their life willingly. They are willing to forfeit their lives on earth for the sake of the people that they're trying to reach. But would you be willing to forfeit your life in heaven for the sake of the person that you're trying to reach? Wow. Now, let me be very clear. Forfeiting our salvation for the sake of another person's salvation is not what the Lord asks of us. He's not saying to us, you need to die for their sin. In fact, God tells Moses, the people will be accountable for their own sin. I got it under control. But, and, and, and of course, through Jesus' death on the cross, God has already provided the final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He's not looking for us to do something more. He's not looking for us to give a pound of flesh or a drop of blood. Or, he's, not, he's not looking for us to do that. But what motivated Paul and Moses, what, what we see in the life of Paul and Moses and Jesus, what they're exemplifying for us, however, is that the love that motivates us has to be of that kind of love, that willingness to be able to say, I'm willing to give up anything for the sake of this person. And that love then compels us. That love motivates us. That love energizes us. We care enough about them. We eagerly desire their willing, their well-being, and we so love them that we can't help but tell them about Jesus. It was uh, President Theodore, or Teddy Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, he's quoted as saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You can argue all you want with people to try to convince them to believe in Jesus. And you may know every single answer to every single tough question that they raise. But if you don't genuinely care for them, if you don't genuinely love them, if you're not genuinely interested in them, your words will fall on deaf ears. But when you care for them, when you love them, when you are sincere in wanting them to know the Lord, your words don't have to be many. They will hear your heart. And that leads me to the second point this morning about conversions. Conversions are by the revelation of the Word of God. Paul reasoned from the scriptures in Thessalonica and Berea. The Jews in Berea, unlike those in Thessalonica, carefully examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was telling, what, what he was saying, if that was true. They examined the scriptures. And Luke describes the Bereans as being of noble character 
as they received the message and studied the scriptures. This was the mark of their noble character. Now, of course, Paul and the Berean Jews had a common point of reference in the scriptures. Paul was speaking from, or he's pointing to, and the Bereans are validating his claims from the same set of scriptures, what we would know and what we have as the Old Testament. So they have a common point of reference. In our context, we may encounter people in our daily lives who don't believe in God at all, who, who don't even think that there's a God. Right? And in that regard, they don't have scriptures or a common point of reference that we can go back to and say, hey, look at this, see what this is saying? This is pointing to Jesus, right? This is talking about the Messiah. They don't have that point of reference. And in our context, we could also have people who believe in a different set of scriptures, sacred writings, things of that nature. And, you know, you have the Vedas and the Upanishads of the Hinduism, or you have the Quran and the Hadiths of Islam, and then there's a whole bunch of other scriptures that people will hold on to as what they would say, this is what is telling us about God. But for every group, for every individual, for any religion, for any set of scriptures, for any of these sacred writings as such that there may be, here are the fundamental questions that you can raise as you engage in a conversation with anybody. There are three basic things that you really have to ask about any kind of religion or sacred writings, or any of this thing. What is the nature of God? What is the nature of man? What is truth? Whatever these people are subscribing to, and by, by the way, those who don't believe in God, absolutely have a set of beliefs that they're holding on to that address these three questions. Even when they say there is no God, there's something in their mind that tells them this is the nature of the non-God or God. right? There's a, there's a philosophy, there's a mindset, there's a worldview that is in those people that is related to these three questions. What is the nature of God? What is the nature of man? What is truth? And so when you think about this and you engage with people in these ways, you don't have to know every philosophy. You don't have to know every argument. You don't have to know all the Vedas or the Quran. You don't have to know all of that in order to engage in a loving gracious conversation with an atheist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jain or whoever it may be. It doesn't matter that you know all of those things. But you would engage with them in such a way that you be willing to listen. And when you say to them, what is the nature of these things in your mindset? What is the nature of these things in your scriptures? Listen to them. Listen to what they would tell you about God, about man, about truth. What do they believe? What do they think is true? What does the knowing the truth result in for them? Ask them. Listen to them. And it is when you engage in this conversation that you can then share what the Bible says about the nature of God, the nature of man, and the nature of truth. When you are having that conversation with that person, stemming from love, a sincere care and affection for that person, a sincere desire for them to know God, 
when you are in that engaged conversation, and now you're asking these questions and they're explaining to you, now you have an opportunity to say, here's why I hold to the word of God in the scriptures here, the Bible. This is why I hold on to it. Why? Because this book, this, you know, as we were watching the video, that people are so wonderfully moved to, to even just have a copy of this book. What is this book telling us? What is it showing me? It's demonstrating, it's explaining, it's laying out the answers to these three questions. And when I look at that, it is able, it, I am then able to explain to somebody that this Bible tells me about a God who is fully just, who is without any sin, who would not even be able to have sin in his presence. And yet, because he knew that we, human beings, in our own way would go and do our own thing and be separated from him, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. He provided Jesus so that we could be saved. He made the means by which we could now come back into relationship with this God. He said, even when sin separates you, I will give you the way by which you can return. And I am that way. I am your life. I am your truth. Nobody else, no other religion, no other sacred writing makes this claim. And so you can explain to somebody and you can say to them that when we were dead in our sins, Jesus gave us new life. When we were in our own darkness, Jesus brought light. When we could not know what to do, what path to take, Jesus became the way for us. And it's a possibility. I mean, it, it, is, it is only then that you can engage with people to say, this is what the Bible is talking about. See, in Acts chapter 13, when we were talking about Acts chapter 13, we said, you know, the word of God has to be supreme in our lives. It, for a child of God, everything it's on the Word of God. It has to be that the Word of God is supreme. But when you're engaging with somebody else who doesn't know the Bible, it's not supreme in their life. They, they have all sorts of misconceptions about it, and at, at best, or they have no idea about it. They, they just don't know. So when you're engaging with that person, when you're telling them about what the Bible says, what you're really coming back to and what we're emphasizing through this chapter is the reliability of the Word of God. It is supreme in our lives. There is the supremacy of the Word of God, but it, there is also the reliability of the Word of God. You get the Word of God into you. You meditate on the Word of God. You memorize scripture. You read and allow the Word of God to inform your thinking. You allow the Word of God to be planted as a seed in your heart and let it grow and let it bear fruit. And you continue to let this Word be so richly in you that when you open your mouth, the Word comes out. And you will find that that Word is reliable to be able to have an impact on the hearer, on the listener. You don't have to make something up. 
By the way, the story that we talk about from the Bible is pretty fantastic as it is. You don't have to come up with anything more dramatic. You don't have to come up with some big story. Nothing. You just tell them what the Word of God says. And it is reliable. It is reliable. It is able to convict, to bring light, to share, to do those things. And so when we speak to people, we tell them that we can live a life of integrity when we live by the word of God. We tell them that we can have confidence in our lives. We tell them about the way in which the word is changing us, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. And maybe they won't understand all those concepts, they won't understand all of those truths, but as you declare the simple truths of the word of God, you trust the Lord to work in their lives. You know, as I was looking at, uh, I was preparing for these messages, I was uh, looking at conversion accounts or conversion testimonies online. I was just looking at some things. And Christianity Today has a number of stories, you know, just the top stories, testimonies of conversions, you know, in this year, that year, and so on. And there's a story there of a man named David Nasser. He's an Iranian. He's a, he comes from an Iranian family. And he was in a military family. His father was in the military before the coup, before the whole Ayatollah Khomeini and all of that took place and before the revolution. And he describes, he talks about the fact that his family had to escape from Iran. And the uh, incredible set of, set of circumstances, very torturous things and everything else. And finally, they escaped and they made it into Europe. And then finally, they made it into the US. And in the US, he was now in high school at that point, um, there were a whole bunch of high school friends who invited him to a Bible study. And you know, he's, he's looking to fit in, he's looking to sort of be part of what's going on, so he went and he didn't agree with anything that was said, he didn't you know, like what they were talking about, he didn't think it was necessary to, you know, to be part of this and so on. And then he came back home and he told his parents, he told his father, you know, this tough military Muslim man and uh, he said you know there are these friends in high school and they want to have a Bible study and he was sure that his father would say no no, no way but his father said okay you know, and so he said the next day there were 17 kids in his house and they're all talking about the Bible two three hours they're there they're talking about this and they gave him a copy of the Bible put it away and then one day they invited him to a church and he went to the church and he and the man who was preaching talked about the Jesus and everything else. And at the end, he said, those of you who want to accept the Lord Jesus, come on in front. And David Nasser said, you know, uh, I was done. I, I walked out and I said, oh, I'm done. And he went home and he said, you know, I, I'm done with these people and with all this stuff. And I'm going to burn this Bible. So he took this Bible, went out in the backyard into the barbecue grill that they had in there. Every immigrant has to have a barbecue grill. It's how you fit in, you know, with... Uh, look, I've got a grill in the backyard. Um, um, you know, so he, they, they, they put the Bible, he put the Bible on the grill, and then he went through the house looking for matches. He put lighter fluid on it, you know, and he went looking for matches. And he couldn't find matches anywhere in the house. Went looking everywhere, no matches. Finally, he's like getting frustrated, and he comes back out, he looks at the Bible, doused with lighter fluid, and he thinks, Maybe I'll just look at it. And he opened it up and he started to read. 
And he just started to read. And he got to the story of Peter walking on the water. And he read this story and the word just started to come alive in him. And that day, in his house, with nobody laying hands on him, nobody calling him to an altar, nothing else. But the work that the Holy Spirit had been doing in his life, and the way in which his life was starting to get transformed already, that day as he read the Bible, he said, I gave my life to Jesus. And then he, he talks about how he told his parents, you know, pretty much soon after that, they threw him out of the house. They said, you're on your own. Here's a duffel bag, pack it with whatever you can, and you're out. He went and stayed with some of his friends from high school, went, went on doing all sorts of other things. And then as the Lord just continued to lead and to guide and to direct, he continued, he pastored a big church, went through all sorts of ministries. He's now the campus pastor at Liberty University. A few years ago, we had the privilege of, of hearing his testimony firsthand, meeting him. Just wonderful man, beautiful, you know, just you can see the love of God on him. Our son has had the pleasure of, and privilege of working with him for many years now at Liberty. But, you know, all of that, all of that to say that when God wants to do his work, oh, it's just somebody, somebody who doesn't even know what an Iranian Muslim believes in. Somebody who says, I, I, culturally, I got nothing in common. Right? But I'm going to invite this, this boy. I'm going to go to his house. I'm going to talk to his parents. And I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to give them the Bible. I'm going to point them to the word of God that can transform lives. And guess what? Just out of that little encounter, one individual. And then, over the years, his sister got saved. His mother got saved. His father got saved. Now he's having an impact with thousands of people. Thousands of people. Where he's out there ministering and serving and speaking and all because somebody said, you know what? I care enough and I want to see people coming to know the Lord Jesus. I want to share with them about Jesus. I want to see that Jesus is changing, transforming, converting people. So how do we respond? Oh, we respond by first loving others as God loved them. You can't go to somebody and say to them, let me tell you about Jesus. You have to say to them, let me love you. Let me love you. Let me care for you. Let me be in your life in some way. And maybe it's something very small. Maybe it's something very big. Maybe it's in your family member. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a, it's a stranger. Maybe somebody that God brings along in your way. But whoever it is, we've got to start first with loving them as God loves them. Seeing them the way that God sees them. Looking at them with the eyes that Jesus would have looked at when he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. When we are willing to reach out to somebody with that kind of love, when we are willing to say to them, hey, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know this Jesus. Oh. Will it make a difference? Oh, yeah. 
It'll make a difference. It'll make a difference. If you're trying to convince them of what you know, of how right you are and how wrong they are, of why the Bible is superior, they're not listening. They're not listening. But when you respond to them, when you reach out to people as God loves them, then you'll be able to say, Oh God, you come and have your work in them. And so here's this point of application this morning. It's the same point of application that I had last week. And just preview, it'll be the same point of application next week. We apply by praying for opportunities to share the gospel. We can't just talk about conversions and say, Oh God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for others who went and told somebody else about Jesus. Thank you that thousands of years ago your word went to the Bereans and they examined it. And it gives me the, the, the same sort of encouragement. But Lord, send me. Lord, hear I. Lord, use me. Maybe it's just to pray for somebody. Maybe it's to talk to somebody at a long distance. Maybe not in person. Maybe it is in person. But you ask the Lord, even as I was mentioning last week, you ask the Lord and you say, Lord, who? Who could I share with? Who could I tell someone? Who is it that, who is that someone that I could tell them about Jesus? That I could share the truth of who you are and let them come to know you too. I thank you that I have been born again. Oh, but I so want for this person to be born again. I want for this person to know you. I want for this person to love you. I want for this person to be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so powerful, so life-transforming. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us these accounts, these conversion stories, and it's not just for us, Lord, to hear it, to see, read it, and to say, oh, that's great. But Lord, I pray that it would spur us into action. I pray that this week, you'll give us an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. Maybe, Lord, just one word, maybe a little act of kindness, maybe some way to show them that Jesus loves them. But Lord, help us to do that. And help us, Lord, to desire. Change our hearts, Lord. Change our hearts so that we would be willing to say, even at the cost of my own, Lord, my own pleasure, my own well-being, my own conveniences, my own comfort, even at the, the cost of all of that, help me, Lord, to reach out to somebody so that they may be saved, that they may know you, that they may love you. Oh, Lord God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the stories. Thank you, Lord, for the examples. Thank you, Lord, for so many people around the world that have been converted, that have changed. That, Lord, some who would, for whom it was a radical change, for some, it, they were just going along in their pursuit of truth and found that the truth that they were looking for was in you all the time. Well, I thank you for all of that. But Lord, in these days, I pray that all over the world, even as we're remembering the work that our missionaries are doing, 
all over the world that people would come to know Jesus. That in the midst of all sorts of adverse circumstances, Lord, in the midst of hardship, that people would be transformed. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.